that athlete-focused approach is what we need, um, particularly when someone says, I've had this negative experience in sport, your first reaction needs to be open and empathetic to that and not, I, I need to protect this, this institution. of Sport, Social Justice, and Development. I'm Natan Levy, my pronouns are he, him, and I'm joined by my co-host Jess Nachman, and her pronouns are she, they. The podcast aims to critically explore the utility of sport and other forms of physical activity, recreation, and leisure used around the world for development pursuits. Today we will be exploring safe sport in Canada. We just wanted to provide a content warning for listeners. This episode will cover athlete maltreatment, including sexual, physical, and psychological harm and abuse. My name is Erin Wilson. Uh, my pronouns are she and her. I am currently a PhD student at the University of Toronto studying safe sport in the safe sport lab at, at U of T. Um, I'm currently also the president of Athletes Can, which is the Association for National Team Athletes, um, and definitely have a passion for, for safe sport and leading those conversations from an athlete-led perspective in Canada. Um, I am also an Olympian in the sport of artistic swimming. I can go next here. Uh, my name is Neville Wright. Pronouns are he and him. I am a former sprinter uh, turned bobsledder, uh, three-time Olympian in the sport of bobsleigh. I am now um, transitioned into a performance therapist, uh, uh, performance therapist, high-performance coach, and speaker, and currently sit on the board of directors with Athletes Can and as well as uh, sit as the chair for the Diversity and Equity Advisory Committee. Hi, uh, my name is Anika Taylor, and I'm a second-year master's student about to graduate and defend my thesis next week. Uh, my research focuses on safeguarding in and through sport, um, particularly on the role that a variety of different stakeholders have to play, and my thesis focused on the role of sports journalists and sports media in advancing a safeguarding culture. My pronouns are she, her. Thanks for starting us off, Natan, um, and thank you everyone for joining us. Um, I was wondering if anyone can um, explain to the to listeners what Athletes Can is um, and sort of what, what the work that Athletes Can focuses on right now. Yeah, absolutely. So Athletes Can is the Association for National Team Athletes, and so our objective is to really represent the voice of, of athletes um, within this Canadian sports system. Um, so we deal with any sort of issues that athletes are facing, whether it be carding, whether it be um, right now, safe sport is a huge one. Um, we focus on diversity, equity, inclusion is another project that we're doing. Um, we also really focus on leadership of athletes. So making sure that athletes are um, equipped to be a representative on the board of directors of a national sport organization. So typically within a, a sport organization, there is um, one spot on the board of directors specifically for athletes um, so that they can um, be a voting member and, and, and represent the, the voice of the athletes on their board. And we, we make sure that they um, are equipped to be able to do that and be a strong leader and a strong presence so that um, the athlete's voice is heard uh, throughout the Canadian sports system and just that athletes are really represented. Um, so that's that's who we are. We um, we do represent all all para and non-para sports um, and yeah really just try to make sure that athletes um, that the Canadian sports system is as athlete centered as possible. Thanks Erin. Um, 
it sounds like there's a really big need for an organization like Athletes Can, given all of your your work. Um, I was wondering if we can go more into the topic of discussion, or maybe one topic of discussion today, which is maltreatment of athletes. And if one of you could explain what that means, um, I know, I know, at least for me, maybe my um, assumption or maybe listeners' assumptions are that that refers to like sexual abuse. But um, maybe you could give a more, maybe you could explain more. Um, you know, what this encompasses. Yeah, absolutely. And so we understand maltreatment to be um, all forms of harm. So anything that um, potentially can lead to harm of an athlete. And so um, the four types of harm that we typically look at are emotional abuse, which is kind of that yelling, screaming. Um, A lot of times what we see ingrained in sport culture as as tough coaching, where you see um, a lot of belittling, berating, all of these things as, as this guys for high performance. Um, but what we've, um, when you look at definitions of child abuse and just abuse in general, those things are um, considered abusive. And so that's an aspect of it. But we have uh, neglect as well. So that's the omission of care, um, sexual harm, and then um, physical harm as well. Um, examples of physical harm in sport can be um, overtraining to the point of injury, um, neglecting um, proper rest and recovery. Um, it can be um, exercise as a, as a form of punishment. So um, if an athlete is late for practice, for example, making them sprint until they throw up or things that aren't necessarily related to sport performance or their training plan. Um, so it does encompass a whole variety of things. And I think um, one of the challenges when, when looking at abuse in sport is um, sexual abuse has up until probably the last year has been the only one that's been talked about in Um, kind of the media and the public domain. We've seen that with the Larry Nassar case, which was obviously terrible, where 150 um, gymnasts came forward um, talking about their experiences of sexual harm from um, the team doctor, Larry Nassar. Um, But there's been several cases throughout history of um, NHL players coming out and different sports coming out of sexual harassment. Um, So I think when people initially think about um, maltreatment sport, that's what the automatic assumption is. But um, it definitely goes well beyond that into a, a variety of different behaviors. Thanks for that, Erin. Actually, I was wondering if um, anyone else, Anika, Neville, um, and Erin, and if you wanted to speak to what drew you to doing this work in the first place. I can um, jump in. Actually, just really quickly to add to what Erin mentioned, um, the term harm is super broad. And I think as we move forward um, in you know, in our safe sport conversations and what type of work we do. It's also important to consider um, things like harassment, discrimination, especially those perpetrated on the basis of one's like gender, race, um, ability, um, and take that into our understanding of what safe sport is and how we're addressing it, Um, which I know is on Aaron's mind because we talk about this all the time. Uh, But I think for me, what drew me to this work was a little bit of a personal connection. Like you definitely look back at some of your experiences and you're like, oh, maybe that wasn't the best. And, you know, hopefully um, as I'm like involved with youth sport, you can change things a little bit um, in the future. So that's kind of my engagement with this work. Yeah. From, uh, for myself, from my engagement in this work. um, Yeah. I I would say it, it, I was drawn, uh, drew to it by um, personal experience, you know, um, of things that I've experienced in sport and, and knowing the, the impact that sport has on, the lives of others. I know for myself, um, sport has had a, a massive impact in my life in regards to direction and, um, you know, focus and, you know, 
being able to overcome a lot of, um, you know, personal issues. So uh, I know that, you know, this is something that's important for other individuals. You know, it's helped me a lot so I can help others. And and um, just seeing the direction of a lot of things that are happening in sport uh, at two athletes, you know, um, the last thing, you know, you'd want is athletes to be discouraged or uh, it become a deterrent for them. Uh, these issues become a deterrent for them to engage in sports. So this is what really drew me to to this this type of work. Yeah, and I would um, say similar similar thing. I was um, an artistic swimmer, synchronized swimmer. They've recently changed the name, so it can go back and forth between the two. Um, but I was an artistic swimmer. I was on Team Canada for about seven years um, leading up to the 2012 Olympic Games. Um, amazing experiences, like so proud of, to be able to represent my country. But um, I know now that my my experience in sport was very emotionally abusive, particularly in the national team. Um, there was a lot of behaviors that my coach justified as as um, good, like as a tool for good performance, but um, were really just negative. And um, again, at the time, you you don't think it's anything abnormal because everyone's experiencing the same things, and this is just kind of you're told this is what is what is needed for good performance. Um, but I left my sport pretty broken. Like I, I definitely had a lot of um, mental health challenges, like leaving my sport. And I just, I felt really, I don't want to say sad for myself, but just sad that so many athletes leave the sport not feeling good about themselves. And especially when they're at the highest level, like I can tell you when I went to the Olympics, like I've never felt worse about myself. And I just think that's so backwards compared to how athletes should feel at when they are at that level and, and having their dreams come true. So that's that kind of, what stuck with me is just understanding, like, how can we make this a positive experience for for athletes when when we see them on TV and we we think that they're so happy and then there's so much behind that um, that's not necessarily true. Um, so that's kind of what sparked my interest, and especially with um, emotional abuse, um, that was something that hadn't really been talked about or, or named or identified. Um, and so that's how I started going into the research stream, trying to understand um, emotional abuse, and then it just kind of opened up this um window for me of understanding that there's so many different ways that athletes are experiencing it and and more importantly that I wasn't alone in that experience there was so many athletes that were experiencing the same things and having the same stories no matter um if it was a summer or winter sport team sport individual sport um like you would not think that um synchronized swimming and bobsled have anything in common but when you when you talk to us and hear our stories there's so many overlapping things that occur and so I just kind of I feel like I've, in the past years, I've just filed down this path of trying to understand all forms of abuse, but then more importantly, um, how to fix it for others, because I think that there's so much potential in sport and just want to want to be part of that. Thanks, Erin. And thank you, everyone, for sharing, you know, your experiences and, and what brought you to this work. Um, I, I just think it's it's so upsetting because, like, sport has so much potential to, like, you know, it can be healing in many ways to, like, move your body in ways that feel good and and also like to think about sport as a work, like if you're an, an athlete, um, you know, in the workplace, like when you're training, you want like it should be a healthy workplace. You're, you're, um, that's your day to day experience. So um, I think this is such an important conversation and I appreciate having those perspectives. No, it's interesting that you say the idea of athletes being workers um, or, or your, your national sport athletes. So oftentimes we might consider, you might be considered as amateur uh, professionals and, and not necessarily um, be given the, the right protections uh, that you need to 
to thrive in your workplace. And there was recently, I believe in the UK, uh, some uh, athletes were trying to uh, form a union or form some sort of representation as as workers uh, that national sporting organizations needed to treat their employees or their athletes as employees and give them protections. Um, unfortunately, I don't think that they were able to uh, accomplish that, but it's 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 important to even have that discussion, to even be talking about it in that way, that you are also um, working and putting your body at at risk, your mind at risk, uh, um, and there is lots of uh, potential harm that can happen there. And it's, as you say, we've seen kids leaving sport. We've seen high-performance athletes leaving sport. So it's interesting how all these issues really are interconnected, and we have to really um, understand this as um, as something that needs to be addressed. Because if this is an issue at the highest level where one percent of people are competing. I can only imagine what it's like for the other ninety-nine percent of people—children, youth, um, anybody else, community sport. You know uh, how it can be an issue for them as well. Um, so, yeah, it's it's quite it's quite important. I was hoping, Aaron, you would be able to tell us a little bit about the results of your study with athletes. Can um, you spoke to about nine hundred and fifty athletes and? Um, you wanted to know more about the different types of abuse that they faced either as current athletes or past athletes. And you outlined the form, the four different forms of abuse. Yeah. So essentially when I started my master's, I, um, my main goal was to understand how to change the culture because I believed, um, that safe sport was a cultural issue. It wasn't just a perpetrator, um, issue where there's one, one bad person in, in the sport. I think there was a lot more to it. And, um, speaking with, um, different cultural experts and people that understand culture change, uh, the main question that they came back with is, we don't know what the landscape is. We need to make sure that we're understanding what is happening before we can figure out how to fix it. And that's something that we realized um, hadn't been conducted in Canada. Um, and so this happened before I was even working with um, Athletes Can and really opened the door to understanding um, what formalized athlete advocacy looked like. Um, and at this time I was a, a master's student at the University of Toronto. Um, and so we partnered with Athletes Can to really listen to the athlete voice. And uh, Neville was on the Safe Sport Working Group that um, helped create the survey to make sure that it was um, as, as accessible to athletes as possible, making sure that um, that athletes were represented and that they would be um, relating to the survey. So we ended up getting just over, um, just under a thousand athletes responding to the survey. Um, and the survey asked questions about um, physical harm, emotional harm, um, sexual harm, and, and neglect as well, um, as well as a few different discrimination-specific um, questions. Um, and what we found was uh, emotional abuse and neglect were the most frequently reported by far. We were, we were talking about like 60 to 70% of athletes had experienced at least one form of emotional abuse, whether that's um, being shouted at, being uh, forced to train in unsafe conditions, being um, belittled, having lies told about you, um, all of these behaviors that that haven't really been talked about in a negative way before. Um, and something that was interesting about these behaviors is a lot of athletes um, commented that they didn't even know these behaviors were unacceptable. Um, and these are something that's like a huge um, highlight of the study for me is just the, the, the normalization and the acceptance of these behaviors, which um, as researchers, we interpret it as just like understanding that this culture has such an ingrained... Um, it's so ingrained within the culture and it's it's something that we definitely needed to address um and similar to what we were talking about before sexual harm had been um 
the most frequent in, in media um, and, and in the normal dialect when we talk about safe sport. Um, but the results were only about 12 to 14% of athletes um, experienced sexual harm. Again, 12 to 14%, I'm not trying to minimize that number. That is horrible. It's horrible that there is that even one is way too many. Um, but when you're looking at compared to other forms of harm, um, it was definitely the emotional and, and the neglect that's, that um, that really stood out and were highlighted in the study. Um, I guess some other things that I did want to mention was when we, we also looked at um, the, the rates compared to identity factors. And so we found that females were more likely to um, experience maltreatment than males. And unfortunately, at the time, um, we did ask about sex characteristics, and we do recognize that gender um, is more than those two. And in future studies, we want to make sure that we're incorporating all of those because there are a lot of differences, and there are a lot of um, there's a lot more more risk associated with um, not identifying as a male. So we do want to incorporate that and acknowledge that within the study. Um, but we did notice like there were significant rates of um, physical harm um, in racialized athletes, which we thought was really um, important to highlight and and um, really opened my eyes as a um, white identifying person um, to because I didn't really understand that that characteristic at all um, until you know a few years ago when when learning and educating myself more on like the issues of racialized athletes and Black Lives Matter and all of these things and understanding how much physical violence occurs um, for athletes who identify as racialized and um, understanding that those, those same things are occurring in sport I think was a huge um, wake up call is something that we definitely need to discuss and look into more. Um, similar with um, LGBT athletes and sexual harm, uh, there's a huge correlation, which again is seen um, in the larger community beyond sport um, and, and an increased risk with um, uh, non able bodied athletes as well. Thank you for pointing that out, Erin. Um, and um, I, I think there's this idea that, like, when we talk about abuse, you know, that sort of power dynamic knows no bounds and any anyone is sort of um, vulnerable to that. But obviously your study has shown that socioeconomic factors matter, just like you mentioned, Anika, like earlier, that harm is also based on race and gender and sexual orientation, disability. Um, I was wondering if anyone else wanted to speak to that, um, whether within your work or research. Um, I know, Neville, you work on EDI within Athletes Can, uh, if you wanted to speak to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so for, yeah, for myself, actually, when, it, you know, um, as Aaron mentioned, I started off uh, in safe, well, actually before safe sport, you know, um, you know, as an athlete, there, there are many issues I was noticing that was, uh, that was happening. And especially um, when it came to um, diversity and inclusion, for for black indigenous and you know uh, people of color and you know i joined on with the the, the safe sport working committee and you know I, I i did realize that there's there's gaps within the the system um, addressing these issues where when there are issues for bipoc athletes you know who do they turn to who can they um connect with in order to that for someone that's going to be able to hear them uh be able to identify or even relate to their experiences and then um you know, help them through a a process to you know rectify um, whichever issues that there may be. So, um, yeah, athletes can develop. Uh, we uh, developed a the equity and uh, diversity and equity advisory committee, and that committee is put together to provide recommendations um, to athletes. Can uh, so pretty much what we are doing right now is we are 
getting a better understanding of the the landscape, which uh, we will be um, providing a, a survey that will be coming out. Um, that's actually supposed to be coming out right away here and uh, to kind of get a better understanding. But yeah, um, I think it's something that definitely uh, gaps have been identified and and to be able to improve the the system, improve sport for BIPOC athletes that they can feel, um, like I said, heard, understood, and to be able to compete and train in an environment that is, is safe. And, you know, if they, especially if they have issues that they need to report, there's a pathway for that as well. Um, if I could just jump in to add an interesting thought based on what both uh, Neville and Aaron said. Um, I don't want to get too much into the media because I know uh, we'll talk about that later, but uh, you know, I, I know we all do a little bit of like sociology or some public sociology here. And so it's also very interesting to consider when Aaron mentioned uh, like the, the greater amounts of physical harm that racialized athletes are experiencing, how certain myths and discourse around the black athlete body tie into that um, or with other uh, different identities and how that feeds into the type of harm uh, that they may experience. No, that's 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 definitely true in that and that myth. Um since we mentioned it, why don't we why don't we jump to media? Why don't we jump to to some of your your work, Anika, and and your research it focused on the role of media in safe sport and Aaron mentioned it earlier. So tell us a little bit more about, you know, what in what ways has the media gotten the story wrong or or how has it been covered in the past and 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 share a little bit more about that if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as Neville mentioned, my, my research is at the intersection of like sports media, specifically sports journalism um, and safeguarding, which similar to safe sport, but it's more of safeguarding emphasizes a bit more of a proactive approach to addressing harm uh, and ensuring the safety of athletes, children and susceptible others from equity deserving uh, groups from abuse or other harms. And so in terms of the media, what I found in my study is that Similar to uh, early research on maltreatment, there is a lot of focus on uh, sexual harm, particularly because it's so litigious from the from the perspective of journalists, and it's often um, not it's often black and white compared to other types of harm that are more empirically prevalent, like psychological abuse um, and neglect. But in order for stories about that to kind of uh, be in the media, athletes often have to come forward themselves, which I think is still something that. Uh, we're figuring out, the athletes are figuring out, and that's obviously not always so easy. Um, something else in terms of the way that we see issues of maltreatment discussed in the media has to do with, um, you know, the way that these issues are framed. So in the past, and even to an extent in the few, uh, pr presently, they're still sensationalized a lot. So they're discussed often without um, context. Uh, it's about, you know, this happened, and it's like a big media frenzy or like media circus for a few days, and then it dies down. Uh, but what we need to do um, and what we need to think more about is thematically framing these. So giving the necessary context, like this isn't the, the first time this has happened. This has been happening uh, for many, many years. Um, and also give, um, you know, solutions to make things better. Like it needs to be more than just talking about the problem. And I think we'll we'll get into some of that context and some of that history. We'll 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 look back at some of some researchers who've who've looked at safe sport, and we'll chat a little bit about that. I was wondering if there was anything in your in your research that related to sports media being 
like very closely tied to the success of competition in sport and 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 the, maybe was there any do you feel that there's a, a lack of interest from from journalists or from um editors willing to take that risk to take that leap to say like this is an issue um because it might in a way hurt them it might it might not be beneficial for them to talk about safe sport because maybe people will be outraged or turned off yeah no that's a great question um specifically to like the second part of it um there's there's a lot to consider in terms of the way that you know like sports evangelism so the way that we that a lot of a lot of folks think that sport is inherently good or the people within it are inherently good just for like dedicating their time to something that is great like we all love sport that's why we're here but we, you know, have probably all come to the realization that we have work to do. Um, but the reality is that those myths around sports evangelism and it being so, so great um, are, are super strong and enduring. And I think that oftentimes they impact um, people's inclinations to tell stories about maltreatment because they are disturbing the morally good image of sport. And that rubs a lot of people the wrong way when and we can we can have both like we, we all have both. We critique to see it get better. Um, in addition to that, I think uh, we also have to be mindful of who can tell stories about maltreatment. There's definitely, from my study, um, I made interpretations about the fact that there is a disproportionate risk for particularly journalists who are women, those who are racialized, um, due to exclusionary legacies of sport. It's like almost worse when they are highlighting these systems. Um, and one often, again, racialized, racialized journalists and those who are women do talk about maltreatment. Um, they are not doing, they're not sensationalizing it. And they're not just saying this event happened. They are saying this happened because of X, Y, Z political socioeconomic, um, systems, which again, a lot of people don't want to hear about. And then would you mind sharing a little bit about how can, how can this improve? Yeah, of course. So that was kind of the main, what I see as the main outcome of my study, because the question I explored was how sports journalists and sports media can help to advance a safeguarding culture. And so similar to what I believe both Aaron and Neville were saying earlier, this isn't just an issue of one perpetrator or one bad apple that needs to be removed and the problem will be fixed. There's a culture underlying um, the continued perpetuation of these harms. So some of the things that came out of my project were both kind of broad responsibilities that journalists have and also um, some more specific strategies. So some of these responsibilities included uh, proactively raising awareness and holding space about harm and not just moving on when something bad happens, thinking about it, what this means and trying to figure out how to make change. Um, it's also calling for accountability from not just the one individual, but also the larger organization, the culture, the decision makers, people with you know positions of power, let's say and also educating the public where possible, because not everyone knows what maltreatment is or what neglect entails or what psychological abuse entails. And then this is in tandem with uh, more specific strategies, as I mentioned, that highlight, again, these values for athletes' holistic health and well-being and their human rights. Um, so some strategies are navigating, when you're working with an athlete to do a story about maltreatment, you are navigating this conversation um, with object, like, um, Journalists called it being objectively sympathetic. So they're still doing their job by asking the questions that they're supposed to, but doing so in a way that is mindful of the experience of the person that they're working with. So not just, you know, being super probing and not giving them enough time to warm up, things like that. 
Um, also humanizing athletes where you can. So always grounding things in their human rights and not just this is an athlete, shut up and dribble. This is the only thing that you do. Um, taking a stance that maltreatment is wrong. And this is a bit tough for some journalists because uh, I think the hallmarks of journalism are like objectivity, fairness, and balance. But the media does have a position of power. They can sway and influence a lot of people. And so I think in something like this, when it's clearly a human rights violation for someone to experience maltreatment in and through sport or society, you do need to take a stance. It's not really appropriate to be neutral in this instance. Um, in addition, um, collaborating with people who are doing the work, like most social issues, like we're not going to get anywhere with just one voice, like there need to be coordinated efforts and coalitions for change. So journalists spoke about um, collaborating with like sports historians or academics to make sure that the piece um, is well rounded, for example. And then lastly, as I uh, briefly introduced, integrating and promoting more solutions oriented conversations. So yes, this happened. But also, here is an example of someone who is doing something differently to foster performance because that, that's still important, but also athletes' holistic development as well. So who's displaying these good behaviors? And we can show that and challenge these sportsmen that it doesn't have to be the way it's always been to get to a similar outcome. Those are a lot of really good recommendations. And um, I know it just speaks to like the struggle of changing a whole culture. Like, you know, and like you said, it's it's not just, um, I mean, journalism plays a huge part. Media plays a huge part in it, but that's just one piece. Um, and I would love to hear others' thoughts on, you know, how to foster a culture that prevents maltreatment, um, you know, in addition to journalism, like what, yeah, what structures need to be in place for that? Yeah, and I think that's um, what it does come down to is, again, this cultural issue. And I think that you really um, hit the nail on the head with that. And I think um, there the sport, it's interesting because you see society evolving in so many different ways. You see child education changing um, drastically from the way that, while well, research has shown, like there is a better way for child development. They used to be a system of punishment. It used to be shut up and listen and do what I say. And now it's a lot more um, interactive learning, interactive, um, interactive development, uh, making a child, like it's a more child-led system. And, and that's really working in, in the whole education has changed. And um, if you look at if a teacher were to do the same things a coach would do, um, it would be a whole different story. That that teacher would be removed immediately and never teaching again. Whereas in coaching, it's it's glorified in a lot of senses. And so um, it's interesting that this this culture of sport has just become very insular and very um, very okay with with these these behaviors happening. And so you do need to address that culture. And there's a lot of reasons that we found um, for this to occur. Um, and I think that's why. Um, a lot of the systems that have put it, been put in place in the past probably three decades haven't worked is because they aren't trying to address the culture. Um, for example, and I think we might get into this a little bit later, but in, in the 1990s when, when it was more focused on, on drug abuse, we, we realized in Canada with the Dubbin um, Commission that we needed to um, change the way sport was, was run because it was a win-at-all-cost mentality and it's not an athlete-centered approach where athletes were more pawns in the game and, and workers, as you said, than, than active members and humans and, and were, were not treated as such. It was um, a very much a win-at-all-cost mentality where unless you were producing medals, you didn't you weren't of value. Um, and that's what came out in this 1990 um, Dubbin Commission, which is now uh, 30 years ago. And so coming out of that, there was a few different things that happened. Um, there was 
um, more more protections in place. Like for example, the Sport Dispute and Resolution Center in Canada um, was instated to try to protect athletes um, and making sure that they had a a way to even formalize disputes. But even with that, it's a challenge because it goes off bylaws that are written by sport organizations that are not meant to protect athletes or meant to protect sport organization. And so it ends up being all of these loopholes that um, become formalized structures, but are still not geared towards athletes. Um, and so I think like athletes, that's when Athletes Camp was created in the 1990s to try to address that and push that forward. Um, but as these systems go, they become more formalized structures and, and move away from that athlete-centered um, kind of approach that we're trying to get. Um, in the 1990s, there was also when when the first cases of sexual harassment came out, they put in place um, harassment officers, and apparently that was supposed to be tied to funding, um, but never really happened. Most organizations didn't have one, um, and and the same thing tried to happen in 2019. There was a mandate for for independent investigations, and I think then we can talk to this a little bit more. Um, and there was a, a, a mandate for an independent third party investigator. But when we talk to athletes, some of them, some sports have it, some sports don't. Um, a lot of sports have it, but the athletes have never even heard of this person. And so it becomes this whole um, mess of, of boxes being ticked and policies being made, but nothing happening in practice. Um, and so that does go down to, to a cultural level to understand um, why sport is the way that it is. And a lot of that does come down to a win at all cost mentality, a, a medals before everything approach. Um, our funding structure in Canada is set up for medal success and medal success only sport organizations are being rewarded by how many medals they brought, bring in. And so even if you try to encourage uh, sports to to put a person-first approach, their instinct is to go back to medals because without the medals, they're getting no funding and there will be no athletes. And so we have to start looking at some of these these funding structures and, and the culture that's created because of this win at all cost mentality um, that are really preventing change from occurring. Yeah, it feels like it's institutionalized in, in, in these harassment officers or these, um, as we saw with uh, Larry Nasser and the president of Gymnastics USA, when those claims were made to them, they said, oh, we'll take care of it. Oh, like, we will be the ones who will decide how to move forward and what, what steps will be. And it wasn't the intent to protect the athlete. It was the intent to protect the institution, the institution of the organization, whether they're going to continue to get funding, whether they're going to continue to get those to get those medals. So I think that's um, important that you bring that up. And Gretchen Kerr, your supervisor, she she wrote a great article recently or a, a, a report um, titled, you know, one step forward, two steps back. And that's really that 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 narrative or that story of how we we've tried or we we, we say we've tried, but we don't really take the active steps to really go where we need to go. It is just that cyclical nature. And I think one other thing that we have to recognize is like there seems to be this exceptionalism within sport governance that um, sport organizations can be autonomous without any regulation. And I think this is one of the biggest things we're realizing now is, um, yeah, we say that your funding will be pulled if there's no third party officer, but that's never actually happened. And right now, um, there is kind of this game of, of, well, no one's really responsible if we don't do it. So we're just going to continue to go the way that we have. And, and I'm sure Neville can talk about that a lot more because he's kind of in the thick of it right now, but there's, there's no accountability for NSOs that aren't aren't doing sorry national sport organizations that aren't doing um, what they're what they're expected to do and there's no one really regulating that or governing it or um, anything like that so we really need um, some more re responsible governance from from all levels to be able to um, really implement change. So Neville, I guess uh, recently we've we've come across the uh, 
UCCMS, which is, uh, which I hope you can um, define the acronym for us. Uh, it's, it's a code of conduct, uh, universal code of conduct. Um, and that was, I guess, the most recent form of protections that was created by our, uh, by our government to protect athletes. Can you tell us a little bit about this, this, this code of conduct and, and I guess some of the, the, the challenges that you faced and, and, um, you know, what you, what you've experienced. So, for, yeah, for myself in regards to like, you know, cold of conduct and safe sport, um, you know, these, these policies are, you know, things are, they're put in place, but once again, there's not enough, um, I guess, uh, governance or, uh, to enforce or to make sure that, that, uh, these, 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 th these things are being followed. Right. And, you know, like Aaron said that, you know, they'll, they'll have some, um, like I'll give an example, like, you know, they had a, uh, a culture session or a session on, you know, racism, discrimination, where it ended up being more so of a, a of a checked box to say, you know, oh, you know, we're doing what we need to do because we, we did this, however, not putting anything into practice uh, as well, too. So um, it, it, it is very difficult because once again, like, you know, I've, I've looked at like, even through the, the structure of the system, you know, um, um, when it comes to, for example, you know, issues filing agreements within uh, your NSO, you know, you have to go through an internal process. And the unfortunate thing is when you go through the internal process, you're going sometimes back to the abusers or, or the individuals that are causing uh, these grievances to tell them about what the, the, um, the grievances that, uh, that, that, you know, that are occurring. And, and the, the one part that really sticks out to me is where, especially when it comes to issues with uh, discrimination and racism, you know, for um, uh, a BIPOC athlete to go to the organization where there's no diversity within the organization to then say, you know what, I'm going to define your your situation by our policies, by what we what we perceive what it is. When they have no way of actually doing that because they have no lived experience or, or no connection to that, and then to you know define, like say define um, what my experience is, and and you know uh, to get like kind of like you know if you get a little bit graphic with it, you're like you know well you know how many of you have ever faced you know racism or discrimination have you experienced um you know you know the cliche of you know um someone you know harassing you within the store you know being followed by police or pulled over for no reason to um to um being blamed for uh, as a you know for stealing something or just certain certain forms of, of treatment and it's like you know i you know I, you bring it up and you know for the fact that they can't connect to, to anything like that they should not be in the place where they're defining that um defining those experiences or making the judgment on those experiences. So I think there needs to be a more in-depth system in place for sure to, to address these issues. And, you know, like, you know, I'll speak to like, as a speaking in regards as, as a, a BIPOC athlete, like, you know, um, these, how important these systems are in place, because once again, athletes have, those athletes have nowhere to turn to or no one to turn to, to speak to, to, to help uh, deal with these issues. Um, or, 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 or a pathway. So, um, yeah, I think, I think definitely there needs to be more work done into, to not just being a checked box, but actually doing the extra work to, to help with the, this cultural change and to, you know, change, um, making, make, changing the system for, 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 
for for the for the athletes. Yeah, and if I can jump in again on the universal code of conduct, like I think again, it's important to have be able to define the behaviors that are, are not acceptable because I think that that's something that's not clear right now. And so the more that we can have a code of conduct being like here are all the behaviors that are are not acceptable, I think that's fine. But there's it needs to be more than that, and it kind of goes back to Anika's point earlier. If we need to talk about the solutions and how to move forward and what that looks like and like what good looks look like and try to explain what that is instead of here are all the things you can't do and we're living in this like culture of fear for a lot of coaches that are like, well, I can't do anything. Um, but again, it does go beyond that too, is it's not always about a specific one behavior. It's not about one instance of um, harassment or discrimination. It's it's often a, a combination of a multiple behaviors and multiple um, multiple experiences that, that end up being negative for, for a lot of athletes. Um, and so the code of conduct is a good part, but again, we have to go back to addressing that culture. And when there is multiple people, for example, experience the same things and experiencing that, not just with a coach, but with, with the structures in place when, when there is a power imbalance between um, a sport organization and an athlete, when, when the coaches hold all the power, the, the high performance director holds all the power where they get to decide if you're going to the world championships or not, or what meets you're going to, or there is a selection process. Um, how are you going to fight against that person who's holding those powers when those behaviors are it's it's not just a one behavior and, and it, again it goes back to that, to that cultural issue and like how do we address the culture um and, and a code of conduct isn't necessarily going to do that um so while it's a good step there's just so many more factors at play just to um quickly add to what both Aaron and Neville said I think a really big take-home point in this discussion of structures is that they really are fragmented it's not that there isn't necessarily work being done but they're fragmented there's not the efforts aren't coordinated and I think just from like my position as a researcher, former youth athlete, like that is what we need. We need people to be saying the same things and taking the same actions. And I think from what I've seen, athletes are doing an excellent job of mobilizing with support, coordinating, but athletes are one group of stakeholders, obviously a central group. They're the group that we're doing all of this for, but like journalists are groups there's so many stakeholders that uh, derive like social, political, and economic value from sport. And we need to consider what their roles and responsibilities are in this because the roles and responsi- the responsibility for protecting athletes needs to be shared. And just to add to, um, uh, in regards to accountability, like you get more account- accountability from, I think, being able to shift from uh, recommendations to, to enforcing uh, certain um, policies or just making sh- like making sure that these things are actually being done or being followed versus kind of uh, allowing um, organizations uh, to kind of govern themselves to say, yeah, you know, we are doing this as well. So I like how you've all described it's, it's not just sport. We've have a very individualized culture in our society in general. It's our responsibility to deal with our own mental health. It's our own responsibility to deal with our ability to provide a livelihood for ourselves. It is, there is no more responsibility based on, I guess the state, the state does not want to take on more responsibility and what we're asking, or it seems like what we're asking for, we're asking for more accountability. We're asking for the, for structures and policies and and, and laws to, to govern this space, to make safe, to make sports safe for everyone. And I think going back to a question that you mentioned earlier, um, Jess, what, what can be done now? I think we also need to focus on education. There needs to be coaches need to be educated. Coaches need to learn about these, 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 
actions, these efforts, what grooming is, what 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 these what these actions entail, and we need to adjust how we coach and and what the priorities of coaching are. Yes, we want to create winners, we want to have we want to win, but there's so much more to us as individuals as you've all stated that um there needs to be investment in in those resources to ensure that coaches know that they're working with the athletes for the athletes more so than the athletes working for the coaches to get those medals. Yeah, just to add on to the, the education piece, you know, um, as athletes, you know, athletes are in order, for example, to get their their funding, uh, you know, that there are certain uh, pieces of, uh, uh, I guess, modules, you know, in regards to, to doping and, and you know, other um, programs that they have to complete in order to get their support. And, and, um, and that's enforced for them to get that. And that's where I think when it comes to the NSOs, where educational um, pieces in regards to safe sport and so forth, for, for example, should be something that is enforced for, you know, funding can, cannot be released to them until they have taken the time to actually do that. So, I mean, if athletes are being accountable and um, if there's a certain level of accountability, for the athletes, there should also be a level of accountability for the, the NSOs as well, too. Yeah, and I think on the education piece too, one of the one of the challenges that we're facing is that a lot of coaches don't under are under the assumption there is this myth going around that the only way to elicit high performance is to um, treat athletes like machines and kind of break them down and control them and and all of these things. And this is something that um, the Safe Sport Lab at U of T is trying to address right now, and we're we're just started a study. We're doing data collection, so I don't have the results uh, finalized. But we're talking to athletes who have won Olympic medals, and and they are completely dispelling that. They're like, I would not be where I am today if I didn't have a coach that treated me like a person, that cared about me as a person, that that encouraged me to have a life outside of sport, that um, enforced in the notion in me that I am a person first and, and an athlete second. Um, and it's all these Olympians really telling me like that that this notion that you need to um, be a, a very authorit authoritative and, and like kind of this dictator model that is often seen in this, this culture of control. A lot of these Olympic athletes are, are basically saying that that's completely opposite to their experience and would attribute their, their high success to um, a positive culture, a culture where they were happy and healthy um, and enjoying what they were doing every day. And so I think um, it's, it's interesting when we talk about, yeah, like sport should be for development, but having that, that same model is the key to success for, for medals as well. And so um, they, should be, they shouldn't be on opposite ends of the spectrum. They should be a synonymous experience, whether you're, you're going to the Olympics or whether you're at grassroots. And, and there's unfortunately not a lot of evidence to support that, but that's something that we're working on and, and hearing from a lot of athletes that they, they, they want to be treated in a positive way. And that's just going to help um, all levels of sport. I think that um, Aaron also really ties back to like, the enduring strength of these sports myths, like the win at, win at all costs, expect, expectations of mental, emotional, physical toughness, things like this really govern how people look at like what behaviors are acceptable and not acceptable in sport, like just at the highest level, like people who aren't even super involved in the safe sport space, like it's almost easier for them at times to brush these things off because of, yeah, these myths, like sport is inherently good, people within it are inherently good. And these behaviors have been acceptable in the past. So why are we kind of questioning them now? So for people outside of sport, but also as Neville was speaking to like sports administrators, like these, those, these myths and like the power of them are also very prevalent there too.
I was going to say also the myth that like um, you're just a body, like a machine, like you said, Aaron. And yeah, it, it is absurd to me that we, you know, objectify bodies to the point where we think of them as gold medal, you know, metal producing machines in, in sport. I was um, hoping that we could come to some current issues. Uh, and, and I guess really over the past six months, we've really seen, uh, I would say, an explosion of conversations about safe sport. Um, as it's come up very often, I would say with, with bobsled and bobsled can uh, skeleton and gymnastics, Canada, the athletes have come out and issued multiple statements, uh, about, uh, forms of harassment and abuse and that they've faced at, at their institution. Um, and I just want to mention, uh, like, as we said previously, this isn't something that's happening in isolation in 2018, Kaylee Humphreys, uh, a former gold medalist for Canada, filed a claim against harassment against one of their one of her coaches. I would say even against, I believe it was against the president and even the high performance director. Um, and eventually, she left Canada and she decided to perform for um, the United States of America. Um, she 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 faced abuse, um, and I, it's it's interesting that it's coming up again. So I was hoping that. Um, Neville, you could talk a little bit about um, your NSO, uh, your your recent letters, your recent statements, and your recent um, um, experiences in in trying to bring this conversation forward and what you're hoping to accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, you know we um, you know we addressed a letter. So we obviously sent a letter that um, addressed four major pillars: so communication, uh, transparency. Um, um, safety and um, governance, and uh, it's it, it is an issue that has been ongoing for you know within the, the last eight years that um, athletes have you know addressed many issues and and things have gone to the SDRCC to arbitration and so forth, but um, the work that we're, we're you know we're trying to push to change because all it, it, a major thing is a, is a culture issue. And um, yeah, trying to, I guess, explore every avenue to try to create this 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 change, uh, this cultural change, this environment change. Because you know the way things are going right now, um, if we continue this way, and you know, uh, especially even how we just alluded to the you know win at all cost mindset. But um, I, if we continue to go this way, it uh, it's definitely going to put a lot of athletes in jeopardy, you know, physically, emotionally, um, mentally as well. So um, it's definitely a struggle, a, a, a work in progress that we've been trying to really push, push this. And, you know, with all this information coming out and the athletes right now are just trying to find the, the support to, you know, create that, create that change. Yeah. So how, how has the NSO responded? You're, you, you've written a, a letter as, as athletes asking for, to address governance issues, safety issues. They haven't really responded uh, to these issues. Um, it's still ongoing. Uh, I know uh, Bobsy has been a little bit quiet, but you know we try to go through a few pathways to see if we can, you know, come to the 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 result that the app that the athletes, the majority of the athletes want. Um, but uh, it's still in some aspect, some aspects still being you know disregarded. Um, so not taken ser uh, as though these issues aren't being taken seriously. Um, so we are still 
still looking for, I get, you know, the, the support, the resources to, to be able to create this change to preserve the future of the sport and for, you know, um, and for athletes to, to be engaged in the sport. And I'm not sure, Aaron, if you can speak to Gymnastics Canada or maybe uh, 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 the athletes there and their request and, and what, what they've put forth and um, maybe what response they've received from their NSO or, or Sport Canada. Has Sport Canada made any comments recently about these, these challenges um, that these athletes have brought forward? Um, yeah, I can't really speak to Gymnastics Canada specifically, but um, in the past year, there's been eight sports who have publicly come, um, come forward with the experiences of abuse, and I think there's probably going to be more um, in the near future as well. But my own sport of artistic swimming, we, we launched a class action lawsuit last year um, because of a 10-year um, regiment of, of abuse and maltreatment that national team athletes experienced. Um, we, we've heard this from um gymnastics bobsled um we've heard this from rowing we've heard this from there's been so many sports that publicly come out um and a lot of those athletes have come to athletes can to try to um help them and and um we we do believe in trying to work within the system we we acknowledge that the system is broken but we do try to make sure that we're we're leaving no stone unturned whether it's trying to go through a legal process whether it's trying to go and and support athletes and talking to their nso's and trying to um, reduce some of that that vulnerability that an athlete specifically has. They can come to us, and and we can we can advocate on their behalf. Um, so that's more of the role that we try to play. And then a lot of what we're doing at Athletes Can is working within the sports system. So we've been um, on multiple meetings with the Minister of Sport, um, and Neville's been been part of that too as part of the board. But we've um, really gone and, and um, shared the experiences of athletes and shared the frustration and shared the anger that athletes have to be having to sit in a meeting and fight for their rights as athletes and as humans like it's it's incredible um that we still have to be doing this in 2022 but um we are really fortunate some of the minister has been really responsive um she's really mandated that um she wants an athlete's first approach every time we go into a meeting with sport canada athletes and like athletes can and the canadian olympic committee's athletes commission and the canadian paralympic athletes council we are all the first ones to speak and we are the ones setting the tone for the meeting. Um, and so instead, of it, so part of that is, is not necessarily, and unfortunately we don't have the resources to help every sport individually, but trying to take those themes that we've come up with, like those themes of accountability and good governance and um, challenges with, with policies not being held and, and bring those to Sport Canada to try to action change. So um, some of the things that are occurring right now is a independent mechanism for safe sport is being um, launched by the Sport Dispute and Resolution Center of Canada. Um, and so this is going to help regulate the uh, universal code of conduct that we discussed earlier. And so they are going to be the ones, um, it's an independent body that's going to be um, helping athletes or, or victims who have complaints and do the investigation and do um, the sanctioning and, and, and making sure that there is accountability within the universal code of conduct. Um, again, we know that that's not perfect and that's something that athletes are are working towards helping um, run. And one of the big suggestions that came out of it was this notion that individual behaviors and in, in the code of conduct isn't addressing a lot of the issues that something like bobsled or gymnastics are facing where it is systemic and it is, um, there are multiple actors and it is a cultural problem. Um, and so that's something that the, the SDRCC and the independent mechanism are, are working to try to figure out how to address. Um, we are also talking about the governance and accountability with the um, Minister of Sport, and she is currently doing a deep dive to understand the landscape of sport and who is accountable for what. So 
if the Sport and Student Resolution Center is, is responsible for um, things within the, the Universal Code of Conduct, who is responsible for governance? Is that going to be Sport Canada? Or are they actually going to be taking away funding if a sport organization is um, not complying with these? Or, or who is going to be stepping in if there are escalations that are needed, like within Bobsled, where we've gone through all of the proper channels, we've tried every every stone that hasn't been turned and it's still not working. Like, who do we talk to and who's responsible for that? Because that's really unclear. Um, so a lot of what we do, again, is just not necessarily individual athletes. And we would love, like, I would love to sit here and, and say that I could talk to every single athlete, but we're just trying to make sure that we're taking those themes and taking those things that we hear over and over and over again, regardless of which sport it is, um, and making the changes at that systemic level. I was just going to add that. Yeah. And I, I think that the work that athletes can is, is, um, is, is really important and, and great in a sense where, you know, um, like Aaron said, you know, I, I did go and challenge all the different systems and to see, you know, I, I, pretty much made sure to go through all these different channels and avenues and, and support systems that are supposed to be there um, to, to see what works at least. And then that way then, you know, if they suggested, you know, every time I'd get a suggestion from a different organization or so forth, it was like, yeah, I went through this, I went through this, I went through this. So I, I checked, made sure to check all those boxes. And um, yeah, it, I think it's just, uh, it, there needs to be uh like with, with, with I, I, there needs to be a, a place where it's no longer so much about recommendations, but in enforcement. And I think that until, we, you know, we get to that place and I mean, I understand everything is a work in progress and there, there has been a lot of changes, a lot of discussions that are actually happening now that wasn't happening before things being reviewed. But I think if we can get to a place of enforcement I think that's where we'll start to see greater, greater change because right now, you know, recommendations, you know, you do what you want with that. Right. And for those organizations that, you know, um, want to, you know, maintain that power, they have sole discretion to kind of do whatever they want. They have no one who they, they have to account to. Right. So um, I think that's the direction. If we truly, truly want to change sport, there has to be enforcement of policies and, 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 and certain actions. And if certain things are happening, you're not in line, then it's kind of like, that's it kind of thing. So um, that, yeah, that's my, my, my take on that. I think to briefly just build on, especially what Neville said, I think that this athlete focused approach and the accountability will come when everyone who again has stake in sport has that unapologetic athlete focused approach. Like you can't be thinking about the business, the larger institution of sport, if you're here and you have, an, have a position of power, you have to balance whatever your other responsibilities are with, you know, a more enhanced focus on the holistic health and well-being of athletes. I don't see, you know, they're conflicting. And I think that's where, from my perspective, where a lot of issues come up is that people don't have that as their predominant focus. But I think that that's very, very, very much needed. Thank you for sharing. Uh, thank you for sharing your your thoughts, your experiences, your your knowledge. Um, yeah, I, I really I really uh, echo those those sentiments that uh, Anika you're, you're you're stating. It really is about everyone who is participating in sport, and I think that's the biggest challenge that we face here is that 
we're not, uh, we need to look at the other 99% as well. We need to find those 99% as well who are participating in sport, not just the athletes, the highest performing athletes. And I think um, that's, that's the challenge that we also face is how, how do we bring in everybody to make everybody's experience positive? Yeah, I mean, I guess, thank you so much for, for allowing us to have this space. I know it's not always the most pleasant of conversations talking about safe sport, but um, I'm sure you can tell that the three of us and many others are very passionate about this and, and kind of working in multiple different ways, whether it's research, whether it's um, like Neville, who's on the ground and trying to mobilize athletes as much as possible or, or the work we're doing at Athletes Can. There's, we're in a moment where where change, there is an acceleration happening and, and change is definitely possible and we need to see the continue to have these conversations. So thanks for allowing the space for us to do that. Um, I think in terms of resources, the STRCC is coming out with an independent mechanism and they do have a hotline that if athletes are experiencing maltreatment, they can uh, reach out to or um, athletes can, can definitely point you in the right direction if we can't help ourselves. Um, I think again, just making sure um, you are taking care of your every athlete who's experiencing maltreatment, they're not alone and that there's a way for them to um, seek out care and definitely take care of them um, their their mental and physical health as well. So just making sure I encourage athletes to, to try to seek out those resources or, or contact athletes can if they need um, assistance with us. I can uh, quickly jump in and we can close out with uh, you, Neville, if that's okay. Um, but I think just, uh, I think Erin uh, did really well with outlining the recommendations um, and also referral to resources. But just again, from the perspective of like how we, how we keep seeing like national team athletes especially in Canada coming out with these open letters I think um, you know another area that again we need to focus on is the response from the national organization so I'm not exactly sure who's doing it but if it's like a PR person for example the athlete focused approach needs to be there as well I know it's it's a bit it's a conflicting uh, role because their job is to make the organization or institution look good but again, just want to hammer home that athlete-focused approach is what we need, um, particularly when someone says, I've had this negative experience in sport, your first reaction needs to be um, open and empathetic to that and not, I, I need to protect this, this institution right now. So I hope to see uh, more of that in the future, particularly as we're mindful of the changing landscape of safe sport and efforts to support Canadian athletes. Thanks again for having me. Really appreciated this conversation. Yeah, I want to say thanks again as well for having me. Um, yeah, I'll, uh, you know, I'll echo a bit of what Nika said, where you know, if we can, yeah, get to the point of being um, creating athlete-centered in, uh, environment and and focus on the well-being of athletes, not just for um, the now, but you know, this is something that could you know trickle down to the future. And, and and improve the landscape of sport. Of course, sport is not perfect, but we're working towards that. And um, that should always be the goal, though, is, you know, what can we do to make um, sport, you know, equitable, safe, um, equal, um, or, you know, um, and, and, and an open opportunity for, for all to be able to uh, compete and train um, at, at their best. So um, I think once we that starts to really be the focal point of a lot of discussions, we'll start to see um, great change. So yeah, thanks again for having me on here as well. Oh, no, thank, thank you all.
like really for for sharing your time with us and your knowledge um and yeah as we're having this conversation it, it is striking me how important you know the this piece on harm is because that is how we change you know all those different um systems of harm you know uh, systemic racism in sport um you know those who don't maybe fit neatly into the gender binary in sport that we're seeing um, issues come up in their part- equal participation and so um it is so exciting to hear about what's happening and, and the work that you're doing so i really appreciate not all, like your work but also you, you taking the time to share with with us and with anyone who's listening um so yeah once again thank you so much and, and thank you for those of you listening in and taking your time to tune in uh, make sure to give us a follow on twitter at sport social justice and development and stay tuned for our next episode coming out next month music for this podcast was provided by lobo loco and broke for free